welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Where our goal is to make politics more accessible and less intimidating. The show features an interview with an expert in the political field, walking us through the many cues we have about politics, civics, government, and more. By providing civic education in the places we are, on our phones, and in the language we speak. And yes, we know, we say like a lot. It's kind of the point. Because politics needed a rebrand. Welcome back to Girl on the Go podcast. Happy Wednesday. We haven't really like broken down a new story in a minute, but I feel like this mm. stupid ass Kevin McCarthy moment is one that we should maybe, you know, chit chat about. Yeah, it literally like I saw it break when I was writing viral today and I was like, Ugh, the love of God, like McCarthy, like really? But like also not surprised. Like this has been something that the Republicans have been teasing for months beyond that, probably. And like, not surprised. It was more of like a matter of when. But what was like so interesting to me, besides that, it's like, okay, like you guys are gonna really like go down this impeachment route, is it's like they really think that they've like put the the wool over people's eyes. Meanwhile, it's like we know that you guys are just trying to normalize impeachment so that it can't be used as like a total weapon mm-hmm. by candidates on the demo side or even independent side in these next elections. Because you can't be like well, like Trump was impeached, like how can you like elect, reelect like a twice impeached president? And then like if they like impeach Biden, they're like, well, no, it Biden makes it was seem impeached. like a worthless yeah. thing, which like it kind of is. <laughs> like now it kind of is. But yeah. I mean, there's a lot to this and a lot to kind of dissect. I feel like first of all, Kevin McCarthy's this move by him is very much, you know, pressure from his right fringe colleagues that, you know, won't work with him, especially during this kind of crucial time with budget tings and government shutdowns. Like he's just bending over for this right, right fringe for lack of better term. Yeah, of course. Mm. But no, it is so interesting just thinking about like the public's perception of impeachment and how like I had like one of my friends like sent the this story being like, oh, my God, Biden's getting impeached. Like because you see that and it's so dramatic. And if you don't know the politics of it, you're like, right. oh, shit, like what he what did he do? And now he looks potentially like this corrupt guy. And it just yeah, now it sucks because it's like it is kind of a worthless thing, given that Trump was impeached twice and nothing really happened from it. And it becomes this like battle of like public perception of like, is this, does this even matter? But then also you learn about impeachment, like in civics growing up, like I remember being taught that part of our government and how it works. And it's just like, seems like such a dramatic step. So it's just, it's interesting to see how people are going to take this and especially obviously going into an election year, but it's, it's just so fucking stupid. (laughs) Oh, you froze. Oh my God. That was so funny. It was, you were giving me just like the funniest face. I was like, oh God, are you going to (laughs) respond? I love a good free stream. God damn it. Well, regardless, what I was going to say was that there was like this interview with Nancy Mace, who's a congresswoman from South Carolina. South Carolina. (laughs) She was like talking about like, well, we're going to do the investigation to find evidence. It's like, you're doing an investigation to find evidence for what? Like you don't have the plot. You don't have the thesis. And I just feel like it's like there, the Republicans are all that we're weaponizing government. We're weaponizing the DOJ, blah, blah, blah. We're weaponizing the FBI, whatever. It's like, 
No, this is the definition of doing that. Like you guys managed to do exactly like what you say others are doing. Like it's mm-hmm. such a it's such a weird mindfuck. And I just find the whole thing exhausting. And that leads me to the proper reaction, which is John Fetterman's. Did you see it? I did. And it was exactly how I feel about the situation. Am I worried about Biden getting impeached? No, not at all. Yeah. But it just goes back to this public perception thing of like what voters are going to think in an already just like scary election that's coming up of like, you know, low approval ratings, people not wanting it to be Biden, just like add it to the list kind of thing. What like this is like going to add to like my pet peeves list. I think this is only like something that has been added to the list since like us working in politics. Like, I don't know if I would have felt the same pre is the onslaught of discussion about polling numbers. Like, I am so tired of hearing that. Oh, well, the approval rating is 42 percent, 33 percent, like whatever it is. It's like I don't want to hear about like random polling numbers. I want to hear about like what they actually did or didn't do. Like, yeah. I don't care I about your random survey in Wyoming. I mean, it God bless Wyoming, but you know what I mean? It shouldn't no, it be shouldn't. news in September, a year before the election. It just shouldn't be news at this point. It is obviously helpful, like, you know, now working on like kind of the messaging side, obviously you need to do that research to figure out where people are at and how to message right. correctly to them and make sure that they're ready to go next year. But why is it news? Like, it's right. not news That's- right now. You like, just we, nailed it. Regular people that. don't need to know that. You know, it's just like it's stupid. just I can't. Biden is getting impeached. And that. not only that, but it is in the midst of a looming government shutdown where Republicans are wanting to cut the budget for government services that benefit working families. And want to give tax cuts to corporations and rich people. It's like, in what world do people see this party and think they're working for me? Because I haven't seen them do a goddamn thing for a normal American in years. Years. No, but actually, like, I couldn't tell you a time or a moment or a thing a result. And I think what like people need to remember, and we should definitely talk about this at some point, is like the classic Republican strategy is like the long haul of like destroying a program where first they reduce the funding and then they like have like a public like media campaign against it. And then the program can't properly function and help the people it needs to actually help. And so then they have like some sort of quote unquote evidence for saying that this thing doesn't work. But meanwhile, they're not funding it because they're saying tax or cut all the funding for it, give all these tax credits to the fucking rich. Yeah. It is. And just just like say what you want about Democrats. Obviously, it's flawed. That's what we really built this podcast on is knowing that we will always say that. Yeah. But think about it in terms of what's been done over the past few years is in terms of democratic accomplishments and who they have been done for from infrastructure to clean air, clean energy jobs, stopping oil drilling and listening to young people everywhere. And finally fucking taking action on that student loan, do- student loan oh. relief, <laughs> just like the list goes on. It's always like, here's what the Republicans have done this week. Meanwhile, Democrats, the bullet list of items of actual like legit solution and like legislation 
Some of it really like, is so good. We'll never... Like to the like point I was so like obviously pretty political fam and my dad knows about the infrastructure bill, etc. It's like, okay, there's gonna be some benefits, maybe it'll be okay. And I was like, no, like you really need to look into like what you can do for your house. Like I'm telling you, finally, with enough forwarding of the like rewiring emails, dad actually looked into it. I get a call, oh my God, $14,000 in rebates in 2024 for like winterized. Like, I was like, first of all, we another need. told you so moment. But seriously, it's we like, need look that storytelling. Yeah, yeah. It's also just it so really hard though for people. Level. Yeah. And also it's like a whole nother conversation. It's just how like also shitty our government as a whole is as of communicating. Right. Government resources and benefits and services to people to actually then use them um which is another battle which is just because at the end of the day like a lot of these solutions help people get reelected, and so it's like almost about messaging for like turning out voters versus like okay we also need to like message and tell people that these things exist and that they can access totally. them and like actually these things will benefit their lives a thousand percent and it That's is really hard to know like what is out there i feel like it's because you don't even a lot of times like know what to even google maybe it's like a small business grant thing okay so you're like looking at small business grant but what if it's like under a specific category and like you don't know the category so it's like you can't find some of this shit so i just again like i think the resource yeah it's just like distribution needs to be better distribution and instead it's just like politicized and they're like look at what we did and it's like okay cool well like i don't feel that in my life so it's like maybe we swap political ads for like an ad that says hey here's this from joe biden sponsored by joe biden hey this is the piece of legislation i just passed here's the website and the one two three step for you to access so and so benefit and then people are like oh like he's just telling me how he's helping me. And then that's going to translate ultimately to like election day, you know? Madison Blue, this is the most genius idea you've ever had. And you've had some good ones. But this one, gorgeous, beautiful, iconic, perfect. Thank you. If I hadn't pissed off that person at the DNC, we might have. (laughs) Well, I now work in like, I do help make political ads. So now I'm actually going to maybe take that and run with it. So if you guys see that out in the wild, let me know. It might be from my noggin. Maybe. Anyways, political tangent aside, we haven't really like talked about politics in a minute because Top Story's been has been on long vacation. She's been on summer yeah. summer vacation, just like thriving. So jealous of her. She lives the best life. Like yeah. I, she literally is in the south of France. I know. Like, like what the hell? I don't she's think literally she's literally just. Is she ever coming? Bottle service ads. I don't know. <laughs> We'll see. But nonetheless, we also have an interview, obviously, this week as well, and a guest to introduce. So I'm going to pass that over to Samantha Peruge to introduce. Yeah, let me just get the hair out of my mouth because I literally just gave myself like a cat-like hairball. Thank you, slut strands. What? You don't? These are called slut strands. Yeah. Slut? Yes. Slut? (laughs) (laughs) One more time. Slut? I've never heard that. Okay. So guys, you missed the precursor to us recording this. And Maddie has been living under a rock. Um, I guess I have. Like, first of all, like slut strands, but fine. Okay. That's maybe, maybe that hasn't hit on the West Coast. I doubt it. But again, 
Maddie didn't know that Jimmy Fallon was canceled again. Had mm-hmm. heard about the the Kutcher situation. I what have. was the other thing that you didn't hear? Oh, Drew Barrymore getting canceled because she's scab and didn't know. Uh, like I was mm-hmm. going through like a list of like all the things that happened like the last forty eight to seventy two hours pop culture wise, and she was just like looking at me like I had ten heads and more than usual. Like not the usual like Sam, what are you talking about? Like this was like a serious ten head. Like also not to like pat myself in the back, but from doing viral and like being like what is the the term like chronically online from like pulling like different trends and things i feel like our algorithm really goes in a gazillion directions and then i just i zone which side note currently our entire favorites page is all women's tennis and the u.s open social media person was like iconic and you need to just there's this one with obama that's maybe you know what i'm gonna put it in this week's hot mic and then you'll see it there which, by the way, guys, we have a third newsletter called Hot Miked. Go sign up for it. It's like all of our faves behind the scenes shit, like tea, POVs on political things and whatnot, racks and all that. It's super fun. It's light. It's easy, breezy. Read it in less than three minutes, tops. And it comes out on Thursdays. So go sign up for that. But anyways, I, we are getting distracted because we, we have a guest. Yeah, we have a guest. Anyways, this week we are talking to Emily Stoll, who's the director of education at Remake. And specifically, we're talking about the Fabric Act and what this would do for the garment industry and specifically garment workers from wages to, of course, conditions and more, like what this would set the industry on a path to do. This act's being reintroduced this week, so the timing is mm, chef's kiss perfect. We get into the whole kit and caboodle, if you will. So, of course, the act itself, but also just the current status of the garment industry and like what that looks like in 2023. So, without further ado, here's Emily. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. If you work in the political space, listen up. Here at Girl on the Gov, we have built our whole business around effectively marketing political messaging through digital media. And we want to help you do the same. We have a full digital media consulting menu these days tailored specifically to the political space. Number one, hashtag viral. It is our paid social media newsletter that comes straight to your inbox every Tuesday. If you've ever thought uh, this meeting could have been an email, this newsletter is for you. We give basics to best practices, platform updates, and the content ideas you need to go hashtag viral. And for offering number two, if you want some one-on-one face-to-face attention, we offer that too. We provide social media audits and consulting to help you achieve the conversions and engagement you've been hoping for from your social media content. And number three, in our newest edition, Podcast Consulting, we are the minds behind this gorgeous political podcast for young voters that we've been running for two and a half years now. So we know a thing or two about how not only to get a podcast off the ground, but how to grow an audience. We provide podcast consulting for anyone trying to get their podcast started or provide podcast audits for those who have started their pod but want to see it take off. Podcasting is a great new in-house digital media marketing tool and a great way for any candidate elected or org to amplify their work and their voice. So head to girlinthegov.com slash consulting to learn more about our services and to sign up for hashtag viral to start slaying the beast that is digital media. Skeptical about custom beauty? I get it. My feed is flooded with customized this and personalized that, all promising to fix my split ends and my dry skin and all of the things. But when pros says custom, they actually mean it. It's no gimmick. 
And your formula literally couldn't exist without you. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair care and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. Their in-depth consultation analyzes over 80 factors for a complete view of your life and beauty goals, and they get personal. Pros covers everything from diet, exercise, and stress levels to uncover what's impacting your hair and skin health. They even asked me about, you know, where I live, the water hardiness that I have coming from my shower, UV index, all of the things. Next, they recommended a full routine of truly personalized products, which were only produced after I placed my order. Nothing premixed, nothing off the shelf. And I know from experience, one-of-a-kind formulas equal one-in-a-million results. Since I switched to pros, I've noticed that my hair is definitely fuller. I have thinner hair that just like will not hold a curl or stay voluminous. And ever since using pros, that has changed. But don't just take my word for it. In a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering an exclusive trial offer. So you can see the difference custom care can make. 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash girlandgov. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash G-I-R-L-A-N-D-G-O-V for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash girlandgov. Emily, welcome to Girl and Gov, the podcast. We are so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. And also so fun to have a fellow podcaster, which we'll get into a little bit, but (laughs) you are the director of education at Remake. And for those that might not be familiar with Remake, what's the story? What do you guys do? Give us the rundown. Yeah. So Remake is a fashion advocacy organization. So we are fighting for fair pay in the fashion industry, as well as on climate justice issues. And I head up our Remake Ambassador program. So we're a global organization. We've got volunteer change makers all over the world. And I have the privilege of leading this coalition of change makers, like helping to equip them to understand campaigns and figure out how they can make change in the fashion industry so that we can make change in the fashion industry and make it a force for good. I love that. And I have so many questions. I can't wait to dive in. Well, you also have a podcast, like we mentioned, and you're the host of the Pre-Loved podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about the show? Totally. Yeah. So I have been a vintage lover and a big thrifter for a long time, (laughs) like probably 15 or so years now, well before it was cool. (laughs) And I think my love of secondhand is kind of what led me into my work at Remake, but it really goes back like a long ways. I started getting interested in labor rights because my grandma, who was a really big part of my upbringing, she was like a third parent to me. She was a union organizer at a plastics factory and she was a single mom, raised six kids. And throughout my childhood, I would always hear these stories about like how her union job and the protections that that job offered her were so essential in her to be able to bring up all her kids, including my dad. And then 
you know, I, I grew up hearing these stories and things. And like I said, like I was a thrifter and stuff, but I didn't like connect the dots to issues within the fashion industry when I was a teenager. But then in 2013, the Rana Plaza factory in Dhaka, Bangladesh collapsed. And this is a very like pivotal moment within the labor history of the fashion industry, because this was one of the most deadly industrial factory disasters of all time. And at that time, I think I was like just getting out of college right around that time. And I was hearing all these stories about what was going on in the fashion industry. And the reality is, is that a lot of people who sew clothing in the fashion industry are young women, many of them young mothers, you know, people like around my age, even at that time. And when I came to truly understand what those conditions were like, I couldn't help connecting the dots to the stories that I grew up with my grandma telling me and realizing that the worker protections for workers around the globe have either significantly eroded or were just abysmal to begin with. And once I made those connections, I couldn't really turn back the rest mm -hmm. of this kind of history. It was like, to me, the prioritizing secondhand, like, made sense. And it was like a values connected thing. And it's really through that that I found my way to remake. Totally makes sense. It's funny those moments in life where you're like, whoa, okay, yeah. we have entered the threshold, we've entered the door and literally the rest is history. Like that's the path you're going to, you know, take and the passion you find from it. And I think what was interesting in doing some of the research when you guys reached out about the Fabric Act, which of course we'll get into in a second, I really felt like whoa, am I going back in time and like reading about the tribal yeah. shirtwaist waste factory situation? Like it just, it really sort of showed to me like how much we haven't changed as a society in this sector. And of course, like I'm looking at their domestic lens, your example, what you just said was international, but there is a connection between that and also the connection between these being jobs that are mainly held by women and so on. And just so interesting and so many different dynamics to go down. But one, of course, we wanted to go down is the Fabric Act, what this would do, what it is. Can you give us the story there? Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting that you brought up the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory because I feel like in school, that's something we learn about when we're learning about history. And throughout history, a lot of the labor protections, of course, they could all be better, but a lot of the labor protections that here in the U.S. we do have were one off of the backs of like really dedicated fighting garment workers in many cases. And so some of the policies that we do have today that protect workers come from, you know, incidents and strikes that followed, things like that. But yes, not to go on too much of a tangent, the Fabric Act. So to tell the story of the proposed Federal Fabric Act, I kind of have to go back a little bit because this is built off of a law that passed in the state of California in the fall of 2021 called the Garment Worker Protection Act. So the Garment Worker Protection Act in California was a worker-led piece of legislation. Basically, garment workers in Los Angeles, which is the largest garment apparel producing hub in the U.S. today, set out to improve working conditions there. And they had three main goals with passing the Garment Worker Protection Act. First was the elimination of the system of piece rate pay in the fashion industry. So up until the passing of the Garment Worker Protection Act, sweatshops were still pervasive, even here in the United States, where we have a legal minimum wage. 
because of the system of piece rate pay. And piece rate pay is basically where the workers are paid by what is sewn. So like by the t-shirt sewn, by the pair of jeans finished, rather than being paid by the hour. And the result of the workers being paid that way is that workers in California were being paid on average between two and five dollars an hour in a state where the minimum wage is fifteen dollars an hour. So that's the first and foremost thing that the Garment Worker Protection Act set out to do is close that loophole and eliminate the system of piece rate pay. And as a result of passing this law, it effectively tripled the wages of garment workers in the state of California. And then the other, another thing that it set out to do was to pass provisions that would hold fashion brands jointly accountable for wage theft that occurs in their factory. So a really common issue within the fashion industry is that there's a lot of subcontracting that happens in fashion. And so the fashion brands, like if you think of like the Forever 21 or something, they're the ones that have all the money in the system and they set out the timelines for how fast the clothes need to be produced. And they set the price for what the product is. So in other words, like, they set all the conditions that add up to wage theft occurring in those factories. But then whenever there is a scandal of sorts, wage theft or you know a workplace incident, the fashion brands themselves will claim no responsibility because they will say, oh, that's the fault of the factory. And we subcontract to the factory. That's not us. We don't have anything to do with it. So... Another thing that the Garment Worker Protection Act did was tighten up that liability so that brands will at least have to take some responsibility for wage theft occurring in the factories where they produce their garments, and they won't be able to pass all of that responsibility along to the factories alone. And the last thing that it, it aims to do is put in place mechanisms for reporting wage theft so that the law can be safely enforced. So you know, it's not good enough to just have a law. It has to be enforceable. So these are mechanisms where workers can, you know, report if wage theft is occurring in their factory and there are pathways for them to get remuneration of stolen wages. So passing this bill in California, like I said, the law passed in the fall of 2021. It went into effect at the start of 2022. That set a precedent at a statewide level which then inspired a proposed federal version of this bill, which is what the, the Fabric Act is. So the Fabric yeah. Act would include all of those tenets that we talked about, but also, in addition to that, some major investments to kind of ramp up made-in-the-USA apparel production and create good domestic apparel production jobs here at home in the U.S. Okay. Well, I think it makes so much sense to have a federal variation of this, given that we have a federal minimum wage, that just baseline, besides the fact that this whole like idea of piece by piece, you said the phrase and I'm going to totally mess this up. Yeah, piece piece rate pay. Piece rate pay. Yeah. It's wild that it even exists, right? Totally. Although I could make the argument, not to go down a total tangent, that it's kind of like affiliate marketing for creators. Mm. Like, yeah, no, it's so true. And and we really believe that like this law sets in place important precedents for other industries because fashion is not the only industry yeah. that operates off of this kind of thing. Like think about gig, gig workers of any kind or mm-hmm. affiliate marketing, like commission-based pay, 
or, you know, in agriculture, it's quite common for people to be picked by like the weight of a load or something like that. And it's not to say that you can't have production-based incentives, but those should come above and beyond the minimum hourly mm-hmm. wage that we've decided as a, you know, a country or a state is the law. Right. Yeah. That makes the most of sense, but like many things, obviously not being implemented, but curious to like the Fabric Act, what is the current kind of status of this bill? Like, you've been working with reps, like who are the players, but also kind of like, where is it in its journey of potentially becoming passed? Yeah. So it's really interesting because the fight for the bill to pass in the state of California was a long one. And so I know to expect like an even longer journey to pass a federal law. Like, you know, we know that this could take a while, but where the Fabric Act is today, this is August, and the bill is being sponsored by Senator Kristen Gillibrand in New York. And it's going to be reintroduced into Congress this September during Fashion Month, which is really a prime opportunity for senators to come on board and endorse it. And so hopefully there will be a lot of news in your feeds about the Fabric Act soon and lots of senators coming on board and championing this bill. Totally. I'm curious, like to the point of it potentially taking a while. Is there a fashion lobby? I mean, I feel like there's a lobbyist for every industry down to like the screw thinner tires. Like there is something for everyone kind of situation. Does that exist? Are you guys seeing that sort of come together? Did that happen with the California bill? Like what was the the abstraction, if you will? Yeah, definitely. We did come up against um, struggles with the California bill, of course, some of the very large brands with a lot of money maybe did not want to see the Garment Worker Protection Act passed in California. But the reality is, is that there were a lot of champions for the bill. There were smaller, sustainable brands, ethical brands producing in California. You know, the brands who are doing like the right thing they were being put at a disadvantage because their competitors were getting away with paying like two to $5 an hour, right? And so there were a lot of responsibly producing brands that wanted the Garment Worker Protection Act to level the playing field. And we're really proud that so far, you know, it continues to grow every day, which is just wonderful. But the Federal Fabric Act has 275 endorsers of brands and manufacturers who are now championing this bill to be passed at a federal level. So yes, to answer your question, we do go up against big business and money being thrown at stopping policies like this. But on the flip side, we do have the endorsement of producers who think that this would be really beneficial for the industry as well. Mm hmm. What are, who are some of the like brands and stuff that I guess are champions and and not curious? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love the tea. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of off the top of my head, some brands that have voiced their support for the Federal Fabric Act, Reformation, Mara Hoffman, Hope for Flowers, Thread Up. Some of these brands have been championing it at a federal level. Oh, you know, brands that are opposed, you know, it's the ones that if you look them up, you know, producing in wage theft or producing in California and and there's 
like the horrible wage theft cases against them. I, you know, Forever 21 comes to mind. Ross comes to mind. I believe like Harley Davidson and Disney were tied up in this at one point. You know, it's the brands that kind of have the repeat wage theft cases against them mm, that are so interesting. Harley so Davidson. What a plot twist. <laughs> You know, it, it's it's sometimes it's more than you think. Like, I think we tend to think of the typical like fast fashion brands, you know, like H&M Forever 21, Shein, of course, comes to mind. But more fashion brands than you would think are are implicated in this kind of thing. Yeah. I also just to keep going on this tangent. I'm just curious, too, especially when it comes to kind of even, you know, the climate angle of this conversation as well. Some of these brands... I'm kind of curious, I, like this pr- price point of some of the like the H&Ms of the world, the Zara's, mm-hmm. the Shein's, like they obviously sell their clothes at a lower price point, but there are a lot of brands that have higher price points that like often manufacture from the same places that those kind of cheaper companies do, right? So like, I don't know, I'm curious if you know more about that or if there's kind of a way to identify which brands are kind of bad actors in this space. Lululemon, for example, like you can now get their same exact quality product from much cheaper companies now that are just like selling it the same from the same manufacturer. I don't know how that fully works, but I don't know if you can speak on that a little bit too. I'm super curious. Yeah, no, you're so right. I mean, definitely price point is not really an indicator of ethical production, unfortunately. And those like mid-tier brands like a Lululemon, like Free People, Anthropology, like they're as guilty of this, you know, as as many of the other brands that we think of when it comes to fast fashion. So what I always tell people to look for in a brand is, you know, transparent statements about paying their workers a decent wage. Because if they're doing it, they're shouting about it. And if they're not saying anything at all, it's a great indicator that there's something to hide there. Remake produces, you can find it on our site. Every year we do a fashion accountability report and we look at about the top 60 most profitable brands. You know, within fashion, there's so many parent companies and da da da, like you mentioned. And so there's a lot of consolidation, a few brands making up a lot of profit in the industry. And we look at those brands and kind of analyze their wage issues, their climate issues, overproduction, all sorts of metrics. And I mean, the reality is, is that across the board, whether you're looking at a big box retail, big box retailer or kind of a mid-tier brand or even luxury, they're often guilty of the same issues. Mm-hmm. That makes so much sense and just makes me feel very validated in my like more. This is like more broad ranging approach to purchasing things, aka an argument that I constantly have had with my mom over the years where she's like, oh, like, well, it's Ralph Lauren. It's got to be cute. I'm like, just because I have a label on it that you've liked mm-hmm. in the past doesn't make it cute. Like you have to like really dig into something and like see like what's behind the curtain. So anyways, I'll be shouting out to my mom later on the phone, like what you just said, because thank you. I am curious though about the garment industry in the U.S. in general. Like, what does it look like? What is like the status of the industry's profitable industry? Is this one that like was and then kind of went wayside? Like, I feel like my context of the garment industry goes in the U.S. goes two things. One, triangle shirtwaist factory back in the day. And two, 
American Apparel and their scandal. Say American yeah. Apparel. Right. Yep. Like TBT to also like middle school and they like all had all God, of, I like that place. I know. Right. We all did. It was My like to like Halloween, also like Halloween costume making. They always brand. had it. Yeah. yeah. They always had it. They also always had the fun stuff. Yeah, it's so true. So, you know, I think we tend to think when we think of like apparel production in the U.S., we do tend to go back about 100 years because that's what we're taught in school. But it's true that the garment industry in the U.S. is much smaller than it was at its heyday. At peak, which was about 1970s, early 1970s, the industry employed 1.4 million garment workers here in the U.S. And then today, it um, employs about 100,000 people. So you can understand that the, you know, domestic apparel production has really shrunk. And I think we're all kind of familiar with why this has happened. We've seen a lot. It's not that the industry has shrunk by any means. The industry is larger than ever. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's that that production has been offshored and outsourced and, and gone overseas. But the reality is, is that, you know, of course, like I said, the the fashion industry is still quite large, still quite profitable. And we believe that the U.S. should be aiming to become a leader in responsibly produced apparel. And that's why the Fabric Act has these incentives for bringing production to the U.S. and creating good made in America jobs here in the U.S. Because there, there are other, I mean, you know, you, you think of like, maybe France or the Netherlands or, you know, some countries in Europe who are also passing really great um, legislation in order to be more climate, be more sustainable and to protect workers more. And so we think that the U.S. should be also trying to recruit those ethical brands and bring them here and have um, their factories producing here in the U.S., yeah, that's super interesting. What has like, what are some things that have like hurt the industry here? Is it obviously like price or the like pricing of, you know, how going overseas is a better option for these companies? Like, and what's like, what's it really going to take to bring some back or like even spur new, I guess, innovation in the space here in the US, like to create more companies to actually, you know, manifest here? Yeah. That's a great question. I mean, yes, I think that historically the idea is that these kinds of production jobs tend to chase wherever they can find cheaper labor. And that certainly happened within the fashion industry. But the reality is, is that I think the fashion industry is starting to have a, I don't know, change of thought around this. Because if you think back to 2020 and COVID and the world shuts down, and product is jammed up in ports and on shipping containers and ships being carted around the world. And the reality is, is that a lot of that international shipping and transport of product halfway around the globe is becoming like more and more expensive. And so I think a lot of producers are starting to have this reality shift that, you know, could we produce here in the U.S.? pay workers more and save costs on some of this like shipping and export and dealing yeah. with ports and some of those those totally. things. And so I think that myth is starting to be busted a little bit. What it will take is definitely 
some investment in terms of, you know, factory upgrades, new technologies, but also like workplace training, job programs, things like that. And so we're hoping that the Federal Fabric Act could have some incentives like that in it that would help to spur this like revitalization of made in the USA production. Yeah, I was going to say, because I feel like, Mike, would something like the Fabric Act be a deterrent from, you know, creating, I don't know, more made in the U.S. manufacturing, just given like if there's more regulation or, you know, companies can now have to be held accountable for wage theft, all the things But I also just totally, this is such a random question, but your answer just made me think of this, especially like post-COVID. I'm curious if like how online shopping, if that's had like any, I guess, of like effect on this whole conversation really of like outsourcing overseas, just because like a lot of people aren't even shopping in person anymore. So like, regardless, it's going to be like online, the shipping's going to be included. Like, I don't know. I'm just curious if that has like anything to do with this or has effects on this conversation at all? Yeah, definitely. I don't have a ton of stats off of uh, the top of my head on this, but something that I hear a lot when we're talking with producers about, you know, what would it take to pursue made in the USA manufacturing is that we, because of all the online shopping, we are experiencing a peak returns crisis. So like you think of all of the product that people just like buy online without having tried it on. If the product is not being made very well because brands are trying to cut corners, then it arrives to you. It's not what you wanted. It's not what you envisioned. It doesn't fit you very well. And if the product's really, really cheap, maybe you just take it to the thrift store, you toss it out, that's creating a waste crisis, or maybe you try to ship it back to the brand, and then what's the brand going to do with it? And that's costly to the brand. And so we're actually hearing a lot of reports from the fashion industry that all of these returns from the shift toward online shopping is creating both like a cost crisis to them and a waste crisis. And so again, like we we think or hope that the tide is shifting and people will realize that like maybe this system of just like buying something really quick, having it shipped to your door, it maybe it's not the right way to go and um, maybe see the tide turning on that a little bit. That's so interesting. Like, yeah, sometimes they just like don't person. even... Sometimes they don't <laughs> even like have you send it back. They're just like, here's a refund. Like, just whatever. Yeah. yeah. I know. And that that's that's waste, you know, yeah. like that's cost to the brand. So it's like financial waste. But then also like, what's that person going to do with that garment that doesn't fit them and they've been re- refunded? They're just going to toss it or they're going to take it to a thrift store and it's going to probably contribute to landfill. Also, that's like such a dumb move on their end because it like devalues the value of the product. Like, why would I pay something I can get for a refund and get it for free? Like, then I would just say, like, the scam on that is then I would just say, oh, I'm returning it, doesn't fit, but it does fit, and just keep it. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's, I, I feel like that's bananas. I see how it happens. But I do think that so much of, like, keeping it in the U.S. and devising the brands to come back to the U.S. and to produce here makes a lot of sense, to your point about COVID, because it's a safer bet. Like, if your product is made here and U.S. laws and regulations are being put against it during some international crisis, your stuff's already in here, meaning you're dealing with U.S. regulators, you're not dealing with transnational 
shipping corporations that the U.S. government actually has no say over, or if something getting stuck in international waters, again, the U.S. has no say over what's going to happen there. So I think that is a huge incentive, to your point. But on a totally different incentive scale, I'm curious about sort of the location, the brick and mortar of the manufacturing, because I know in Massachusetts, for example, used to be a huge textile industry. And there's all these factories, they're getting turned into apartments and re, you know, sort of the classic, like, let's turn it into something new vibe, which is great. We love to have a rehab moment. But I'm curious, like, if there's any incentives in the Fabric Act or elsewhere for companies to actually take those factories back and turn them back into factories, because it's like, then the question becomes, you know, are you going to build new buildings for these factories? Are you going to do it sustainably? Like, what does that end of things look like? Yeah, you know, I think the reality is, is that the fashion industry has changed a lot since those big, you know, like you said, in the East Coast, those big textile mills where things were all done in one place. And even sometimes workers would live on a campus around those mills. I mean, I just think that the reality of like, what the industry looks like and what the equipment looks like and everything. It's changed a lot and um, will continue to change with technology developments. But here in the U.S., you know, top garment manufacturing states, if you want to look at the top five, they're California, like I mentioned, um, Los Angeles is the largest, then New York, which I think makes sense, Texas, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. And so, you know, in the South, some of the the reason why there's hubs there is because historically a lot of like the raw textile was produced there. So the cotton or things like that. And so that it would make sense that there would be apparel hubs around that. And then, of course, like out east, those big textile manufacturing centers of the past. And so we really hope that, you know, we can see again, like I said, like it's not going to look like it did. But we hope that those states like California has done can embrace this idea of like, oh, we are going to be the home of responsibly produced brands. We want to incentivize ethical brands to come create jobs in our state and produce product here. Yeah. Well, as we look to get the Fabric Act across the finish line. I'm curious what it looks like as far as like which reps are specifically on board. I know you mentioned Senator Gillibrand, but curious like what others are kind of on on board with this and where people can like reach out or just like kind of what that political landscape looks like to pass this bill. Yeah. So as folks are listening to this, I know I mentioned that the bill is going to be reintroduced um, to Congress for committee review during fashion month. So that's September. So please do follow Girl in the Gov, but also remake on social because this is going to be a really exciting time for this piece of policy as it's getting its review and its first round of endorsements from senators. If you're listening, you can also go to fabricact.org and you can sign our petition saying that you're in support of this bill. If you're a fashion brand and you happen to be listening, you can also endorse the bill online there. And those kinds of things are really crucial at this time when we're trying to get early endorsements for the policy. It's important for those representatives to be hearing from people in their state that this matters to them and they think it should pass. So hopefully lots of exciting uh, news to come. Totally. Oh my gosh. Well, very exciting to 
have this bill come online and learn about its sort of the background and what's to come. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us all about this. Thank you so much.